What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bomb. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming back both Dr. Sanjay Yoshi as well as Mike Paletta. What's going on there, guys? How you doing? Thanks for joining the show again. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us again. Oh. Yeah, yeah we're, we're just looking forward to fall. Both of us uh, get worn out by the end of summer. The heat is just too much. Yeah, where did the, uh, where did the summer go? You know, I mean, for crying out loud, it's September. It's going to be, uh, it's right around the corner. Kind of hard to believe. I know. Sanjay's back in school. Ay, ay, yep. ay. Um, so just before we get into it, I'm going to just uh, briefly uh, fill you folks in on who Sanjay and Mike are. In case you don't don't know who they are, they're um, they're both icons in the uh, hobby in the industry. And uh, as always, I'm thrilled to have them on the show together. Sanjay has written many articles about reef keeping. He's been a speaker at several National Marine Aquarium Society meetings and local clubs in real life. Sanjay is a professor professor of industrial and manufacturing engineering at Penn State University. Mike, too, has written a lot of articles for many publications. I think both you guys are writing for Reef Builders as well now, too, right? Um, he yep. has published two books, The New Marine Aquarium and Ultimate Marine Aquariums. And Mike has also been a speaker at many reefkeeping conferences in the U.S. and around the world. Um, last year, Mike was named the 2002-22 Masna Award recipient. So before we start chatting with these guys, I want to thank the sponsors for the show both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the show. And I also appreciate all you folks out there that are tuning in. I see there's a whole bunch of you already tuning in to the, uh, to the episode. I see a lot of familiar faces in the uh, chat. As always, please hit that like button so more people can find the stream. And while you're at it, hit that subscribe button if you haven't done so already. Always encourage comments and questions in the chat. It'll be a lot of fun, more fun to have this as a uh, an interactive discussion. We'll um, we'll we'll uh, I'll do my best to keep track of some of those questions in the um, in the chat there. So guys, how, how's it going uh, these days, reef tank wise? What uh, what's new with your tanks? Well, you... my tanks are really good. The little problems that I had, you know, that were lingering and kept going for two years, and I couldn't really put my finger on it. They seem to have disappeared. Uh, thanks really back to what it used to be in the sense of growth. You know, I'm starting to see a lot of new growth. The corals look happy. They look colorful. And that makes me happy. <laughs> Did, yeah. were, you, were you able, Sanjay, to kind of pinpoint what the problem was? No. No. I was never able to find it. Uh, tried a lot of different things. Didn't help. Even tried to get a bacterial swab of some of the corals and see if we could find something. Uh, that didn't work. And I, I just said, I'll just write it out, and you know, hopefully at some point it'll start turning around again. And it did. And I did end up losing a few large colonies, but I look at the positive side and I go, now I can put more frags in there. Yeah, yeah. When when you were when you were visiting. <laughs> When you were uh, visiting, you you, uh, you left with a bunch of uh, goodies. How are those frags doing? Yeah, those are doing all doing good. Yeah. Yeah. When he visited me last month, he went home. He said, "I'm only going to get a few frags." He went home with 22 frags. 
It's the most he's ever taken from us. So I got twenty from twenty from Keith. I think it was twenty-three. So you you talk like so you know you put forty-five frags in there, and then you know you lose a few because they fall off. Yeah, it pisses me off when the glue doesn't hold, and you know I'm gone for two weeks, and I come back and I go, oh, where's that frag gone? You know. By then, it's too late. You can, you can yeah, see I, I, it I removed the all same. my urchins from all my tanks for that reason. I just got tired of losing stuff because the urchins would come out at night like a bulldozer and just knock <laughs> everything over. They did a fabulous job on the algae, so now I've gotten a bunch of small snails in to replace them. And the other thing I did since the last time we talked, Keith, is I totally redid the tank behind me, the soft coral tank. I put in a uh, brand-new metal uh, stand from uh, All Your Fab. Had to tear down the tank, took away the wooden stand, put this tank in, and 16 hours later, much happier with this tank. I can work in this tank. I can get underneath it. I can move it if I need to because it's on casters. Uh, it's light and day, night and day compared with the old system. Plus, I aquascaped this before. I was just collecting corals and putting them in because I knew eventually I was going to do this. So this time I've tried to aquascape it more so it gives it some uh, appeal. Yeah, I mean, how much do you obsess, Mike, in terms of the aquascaping part of it? I, I, I like it to look nice, but the main thing I want is space for the corals and places for the fish to hide. Uh, if you have places for the fish to hide, they come out all the time. If you don't have any places for them to hide, they hide all the time. <laughs> so it, it's crazy, but that's what I found. If you have lots of spaces, they feel comfortable, they're out. If you don't have spaces, they hide. So I've, I've tried yeah, to make a, it so, you know, tall corals in the back, uh, things that like the dark under the overhangs. I've, tr I've tried to uh, go back to my old aquascaping habits of soft corals, which I hadn't done in six, eight years, and redid this tank. Right now, these corals are all reasonably sized, but with sunlight hitting them, I can already see the uh, amount of growth going on, even since I did that. It's pretty impressive. Sanjay, you were to say something? Yeah, see, that's the problem with a lot of the aquascaping these days. People are creating these tree-like structures and they're so open and sparse that there's no place for the fish to hide. The fish don't feel comfortable until they have a home. And I've noticed with my fish, they always sleep in the same place. Yeah. You know, so you've got to think about these aquascapes in such a way that, especially for people like me who keep a lot of fish, that you need to have places for the fish to sleep and hide. It's only then that they feel comfortable. I mean, I have a Karamabi in my cave tank, and he's out all the time. You know, when I had him in a different tank with very little aquascape, with very little hiding places, that fish just didn't want to come out. You know, the Cuban bass did the same thing. You know, he's out all the time now. Yeah, it is. It is. Curious if they have, there's lots of hiding places they're out. If there's no hiding places they hide. It's, yeah. it's been that way forever. They don't feel comfortable unless they know they have a place to go. Yeah, that that was one of the things I was worried about when I rescaped my um, one of my display tanks is that I had a very um, open aquascape, you know, minimal uh, rock. I think it was uh, I want to say like 90 to 100 pounds in a 187 gallon display tank. So a lot of swim throughs and, and what have you. But yeah, I think the fish definitely are more um, uneasy and not as uh, home as what they were used to. So, but, you know, I guess the one thing to... I mean, now I have so much coral cover and coral growth 
I've got tiers and tiers of corals, corals growing on top of each other. So now they have actually have a condo, a multi-layered <laughs> condo to sleep. Right. That's what I was going to say is like, you know, eventually the corals will grow and fill in all those gaps. Um, yeah, I've got this gigantic, um, I don't know if you remember, Sanjay, uh, orange cap in the, uh, the uh, back panel of the peninsula yeah. tank, which is now home to a pair of my um, storm clownfish. And um, mm -hmm. that thing is, uh, that thing is becoming a beast in itself. And I'll have to start probably breaking that thing apart or else it will, it will take the whole time. I have my orange cap on a seven foot tank covers the back of my tank, almost two okay. and a half feet. And, and the other three feet is the Mantipura Andara that's grown, <laughs> filled up all that space in the back. So I don't mind it. It's kind of hidden in the back and it's growing on the walls and, you know, it can do How all often that. are you guys uh, going in there and, and trimming back colonies like that? Are you doing that actively or are you doing it only out of necessity if something is starting to, you know, butt up against something else and creating an issue? More necessity. Yeah. I, I, I kind of like the growth and things, you know, occupying a lot of space and things like that. So... It's only when it becomes a necessity, I go, okay, I got to chop this up now, you know, a little bit. I did that just yesterday to the, uh, what's that one, that mycidium, what's it called? Raja Rampat colony, right? That thing is huge, yeah. but it puts out tentacles that'll kill. It puts out, mm. you know, mesenterial filaments. So I could see coral surrounding it. It had killed some of the branches on the coral, so I kind of went in and the screwdriver and just hacked it out of there and pushed it back. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. as chalices go, it's probably one of the most aggressive, but all the chalices kill anything near them. It's amazing. You all think they're docile, but at like 3 o'clock in the morning, when I can't sleep, mm -hmm. I go down and I see all these wars going on. <laughs> yeah, I've, never, I've always been afraid to keep chalices. You can keep yeah, I mean, I put this one... I put a small frag way in the bottom of the tank, in a valley in the tank where I would never put any other coral. And now it's like just fill that whole valley and it's growing up the sides and reaching my corals. <laughs> so Sanjay, getting back to your comment about frags uh, falling off the rock work, any, um, any favorites in terms of putty or super glue to you know, get those frags to stay to the rock work? Anything you found more effective? Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been using Super glue, the gel super glue from Polyp Lab. You know, it it works. It works for a while. Well, and if the coral is fast enough growing where it encrusts nicely, then there's no issue. But when you start dealing with slow growing corals, you know, that's the when I've seen most of the problems, especially like the purple monster where it'll sit there mm. for months and barely cover the, yeah. the plug. Those are the kind of corals that I've found that the glue weakens over time and they haven't been able to encrust over it and attach to the rock. Those are the ones that I end up losing. Yeah, I, yeah. I use the sandwich method too, where I use polyp labs glue, then Julian's epoxy, then a little bit more polyp labs glue and put it down. The problem is a lot of the frags you get are so small and the plug's so big that the glue dies before the coral can grow over the plug. What you need to have is a... a <laughs> frag on an appropriate size plug so it can try to match the speed with which the glue melts. So that's the, always the battle that we're always facing. 
Yeah, I've yeah. tried your method, Sanjay, in terms of just using pure uh, super glue to put frags down and, and um, you know, running the same issue that, that you have. Like over time, it just um, it seems to kind of give way if the, if the frag's not growing uh, strong enough. But then, Mike, I'm also doing what you're talking about. I think that's the, the, the my most recent uh, way to go about doing it is super glue putty and then super glue. And, um, you know, it, uh, it seems to work better, but, you know, again, there are times, uh, and we were talking about this before the, um, before you got on, uh, Mike, before the show started, you know, you got something that could, uh, bulldoze a frag over like, um, a big turbo snail or an urchin or something like that, then no matter what you're using, that's probably going to get knocked over. Yeah. Even in the soft world tank, sometimes. I got a, a turbo snail that's about this big that, it, it does a phenomenal job of keeping everything clean, but it does a horrible job of keeping everything in place. So every morning, I, there's always something knocked down. The fish, too. I found that certain sometimes the fish don't like you putting frags where they don't want it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah damsel fish in particular are real. And they're coming in. No, they, they push it yeah, over. Yeah, they push it right over. They push it over. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it sucks. I mean, I uh, I once lost a a frag of a uh, of a of a pink millie that I was just uh, really digging. I mean, I was like in love with this, uh, and I couldn't find it. You know, it fell into the rock work, and and I looked for days. Yeah, I did find it yeah. uh, a couple months later, though. <laughs> yeah, dead. A little white, nothing. Yeah, I've got three different blue and violet flashlights. Yep. That I mostly use to find frags that have fallen. <laughs> so and, and I look at them at night to see if I can catch some fluorescence and find those frags. But the other problem is that I can't reach them. Yeah, well, your tank is big. In my tank, I, I can't reach it sometimes. See, I'm lucky I have these long yeah. monkey arms that are 36 <laughs> inches long. I can reach uh, it doesn't work when you have no space, when you have no space between your coils to go in. <laughs> And the other interesting thing I found is when I do that, sometimes I'll be able to reach. But if I hit the corals, acros with my forearm, I get little welts on my hand now. Yeah. That I never used to get before. So I'm kind of, you know, wondering if I'm developing an allergy to some of these corals over 30 years of touching and handling them. You're, you're... Well, like that. If, if I even put my hand in the euphilia tank, I'll start to develop a rash on it. I got to put. Uh, uh, what the heck? Uh, da, 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 uh, what's the uh, Benadryl cream on it? Oh, yeah. Right after I work in the in the euphilia tank. I mean, I'm not even near the euphilias. I'm moving a gani or moving something on the bottom of the LPS tank. Just being in the water with the euphilias causes my rash to go off. Greg Carroll, thanks for the uh, reminder. Uh, comment is, what's up, everybody? Did you hit that like button when you came in? Appreciate that, man. See so some other familiar faces, uh, Chris and Amanda Meckley out, out there watching. What's up there, guys? Uh, Bert Minshew, uh, Biggie, yes. Um, Champion Lighting and Supplies in the house. It's called, he said refresh. That's what it's called. <laughs> it's called refresh. Yeah. Huh? Well, did you, did you see that post I put about eight people dying from Vibrio infections? And actually, there was another post yesterday that someone in Pennsylvania died from a Vibrio vulnificus infection. So that, whenever I had the uh, outbreak of uh, STN in the tank, it was Vibrio. And from what I got from my microbiologist friend, it was vulnificus. But there's like 206 different strains of Vibrio vulnificus. So I don't know if it's one that causes flesh-eating bacteria. Is it flesh-eating bacteria 
or just a nasty bacteria. But either way, I become a lot more uh, cognizant of the fact that if I start getting bacterial infection in the tank, I will probably wear shoulder length gloves now. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what's going on there. Bio warfare going on in our tanks. You know, it's uh... it's attacking <laughs> us too. Yeah. So. Um, so, guys, any um, any new experiments going on? You trying anything new and different these days with the tanks, Mike? You're always doing something. No, I have I have followed my mentor Sanjay. <laughs> Thank you, Sanjay. But I, I found the best experiment to do that has caused the least amount of grief and aggravation was no experiments. So everything basically has been stable for the most part for the last six months. Uh, I'm sending in monthly ICP tests now to Fauna Marin and getting everything back. I'm trying to keep everything as stable as I can. And in doing so, I'm seeing uh, the, not close, not quite the growth that Sanjay is, but significantly faster growth than I was seeing when I was constantly changing and tinkering things. So although I found some things that were beneficial, I stuck with those, but I'm sticking with them and not changing them or tinkering and always trying to make things incrementally better because in the long run, it wasn't working. Sanjay, what about you? No, I'm just doing what, you know, it's been working lately. So I stopped tinkering once I couldn't, I gave up and I said, you know, whatever it is that's happening in my tank, just let it ride. And, uh, well, the algae scrub is relatively new. Time takes care of a lot of things. You're, you're putting on the algae scrubber is relatively new, isn't it? No, no, that's been there for three years or more. Oh, really? even. I don't yeah. even remember seeing it. I put that in there when I was, you know, when my nitrates and phosphates were ridiculously high. So I was like trying to get them down and bring it all down. And right now, I mean, I, the tank's been running at numbers that I usually never run like at. what? You mean low nutrient levels? You know, my, my nitrates are like three you know phosphates running at like 0 0.04 0 0.03 sometimes you know so i've been playing around with driving things down and definitely the colors have improved okay so it makes sense you know high nitrates increases the zooxanthellae in your corals and tends to you know create more of a brownish look to them uh or reduce the amount of zooxanthellae in the corals, you can drop the nutrient levels down quite a bit. Um, and then the other thing I've been doing differently is, well, it's been almost been a year now since I've been doing it. I've been dosing ammonium chloride. Not chloride, ammonium hydroxide. You know, uh, everything that I've read in the literature and speaking to my friends here who do research in, on zooxanthellae at Penn State, and they all kind of seem to imply that zooxanthellae will preferentially take up ammonium over nitrate. So when they run their experiments growing zooxanthellae in a test tube or whatever they're growing them, they said, yeah, you know, we actually have noticed that the ammonium goes down first and then the nitrates start to go down. So I'm like, oh, I'll shortcut the whole system and I'll just doze ammonium. <laughs> so is that what uh, has been driving your nutrients down, do you think? The nutrients down, I, I, I started driving them down, but I was bringing the nitrates down with vodka, and then I was driving the nitrates down, the phosphates down with lanthanum chloride and GFO. Uh, nitrates are pretty stable now, you know, but the, whatever little dosing I'm doing and 
a little, I run, I still run a little bit of vodka in there just to get some, you know, carbon in there in the system. But the phosphates are the ones that you actively have to bring, have to actively try to keep them down. Mm. How are you dosing the ammonium hydroxide? You doing a bolus dose? You doing several small doses? No, no, I put it on a doser and I dose throughout the day. Okay. Yeah. And do you see a spike after you dose it? How long after you just get diminished? What? After you dose it, how big of a spike do you see, and then how long does it take for it to diminish? There's no spike because it's dosing continuously, small, small amounts all throughout the day. Okay. I think that's the best thing that that's come up out in the hobby these days: these dosing pumps and the cheapness of these dosing pumps. You can get these cheap dosing pumps, program them, and just dose throughout the day. Even if I'm dosing five milliliters of something, I'll dilute that with lots of water. And then just dose like 50 ml of that water per day. I mean, yeah, so that, that way I can get my 5 ml in. But I'm not trying to finesse that pump into dosing small micro amounts, right. which they have trouble with, right? So diluting them first and making a larger volume and dosing the larger volume, I think that takes so care the, of that uh, Greg, Carroll is, Greg Carroll is wondering whether the, uh, the ammonium hydroxide raises pH. Does, does that raise the pH? My pH always runs on the low side, so I don't really care. I'm happy putting anything that will raise the pH up. What, uh... <laughs> you did stop running your calcium reactor, though, didn't you, Sanjay? Yeah, that was just the so last one. You did make month. a change. That, you're make, that's a big you're change. making a lot of changes, Sanjay. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a you're temporary like me. change. No, it's a temporary change. It's while I switch over and put the new calcium reactor in. I decided that I needed to find out how much alkalinity my tank was consuming. And it's a lot easier to do when you're dosing stuff. Right? Yeah, because you can measure exactly and what... I can then do the math and go, okay, now I know exactly how much alkalinity my tank you're is You're also using doing Kalkwasser, though, too, right? No. Not right now. I'm doing Kalkwasser right now because, because as when I sh was shutting down my, my calcium reactor... At that point, since I was traveling for two weeks, and I said, you know, I'm going to shut this one down too and just rely on one thing so I can measure, literally measure how much alkalinity is being used up by my tank, and I was totally surprised by it, you know. Uh, yeah, because you're running, a, you said like a liter. I started putting in, you know, okay, I put 300 ml of, of uh, the, the, the sodium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate and carbonate, oh, sorry, sodium yeah, carbonate. Yeah, soda ash. Soda ash. At 300 ml, the alkalinity kept trashing down and down and down. And I kept cranking it up, cranking it up. You know, I'm almost up to 1,250 ml Whoa. of alkalinity Whoa. per day. That's illusion. Wow. So you're doing like 50 ml an hour? Um, whatever it comes out to, yeah. yeah. I'm but yeah, that's, uh, that I was, you know, that's why I asked the question on, on, the, on Facebook the other day. And I had uh, Chris Jury jumped in there, and he did the math for me, and he said, oh, yeah, that's perfectly fine for a tank stocked like yours and with the kind of growth. He says, that's what you should be seeing. He says on coral, on some of the coral reefs with fast-growing aquas, they see even more than yeah. that. Uh, thanks well, thanks for the um, – sorry to interrupt you guys. Thanks uh, to the anonymous donor for the Super Chat. Comment is smash the like button for Dr. J, Mike P, and Reef B. <laughs> Sanjay, part of part of the, your success and part of the secret to your growth is 
you also still run your uh, radion lights for 10 hours a day at full spectrum on all channels? Yeah. So obviously, with that amount of energy going in, you have to supply them with something. So because I run mine for around five and a half hours, I, I do that now for all channels five and a half hours a day, and I'm doing about 500 milliliters a day. So I'm at half the time you're doing it, I'm using about half the dose. It took you 20 years to listen. Nine, 30. <laughs> Sanjay, um, Greg has got another question for you about the calcium reactors. He's wondering which, which calcium reactor did you have and which one are you going to go with? I had the Dastako reactor. Okay, and I ran that for several years. Too many moving parts. So there's too many things to break down and, you know, you have issues with all of those things when they break down, especially given all my travels. Mm -hmm. And the last time it broke down when I was in Miami and I said, that's the last straw. I mean, that's it, you know. Uh, but I always ran because I didn't trust the reactor to be working when I was gone 100% of the time. I always had a backup system of dozing. So I always had a backup dozer set up which I can easily control from my apex. I could not control the destaco from, from mm. remotely, so yes. I couldn't adjust it. Uh, now I'm going with the reef octopus that I saw in your house. Yeah, and Greg Carroll turned me... That's the one. I, the only reason I went with that is because I well, saw Greg, you using Greg it. Carroll turned me onto it, so uh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. They make a big enough unit for your tank, or are you having to run two of them? I haven't installed it yet because I'm still running my little experiment with, with the two-part system to get a good handle on how much is being used. Did you get the, um, the single-chamber calcium reactor from uh, Reef Octopus or the dual? Yeah, I, I, um, I have both. You know, I've got the dual on one system and I've got the single on the other system, and uh, I find the single to be perfectly fine. You know, I've got the dual-chamber one to help with the, um, you know, with the pH in terms of helping. Do you see much of a difference? That was the other problem with the Destaco reactor. To dissolve the media it uses, the pH had to be close to mm, six. Low melting point. So it always depressed the pH yeah. in my tank. Okay. Um, so I was, you know, counteracting the drop there by just increasing my alkalinity and keeping it at 10 or 12 at times, you know, just because I found that if you jack up the alkalinity in those situations, it kind of the depressing of the pH doesn't seem to affect yeah. things too much. Um, How much of a bump in pH have you seen since you switched over to dosing versus the reactor? Oh, now yeah. with with dozing and the amount that I'm dozing, yeah, you should, be, you should have a higher pH now. Oh yeah, the pH is up. the 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 high pH is up by at least point three to point four. Units. So you're not so my tank now runs between eight and eight point four. Okay. Before it was running at seven point eight to like eight point one. And you're noticing better. Um, well, you haven't been running it that long, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. running that long, so I really don't. But know. two months? No, no, no. It's not even been a month. Oh, okay. Well, that's the last thing you need, Sanjay, is uh, more growth. <laughs> I enjoy the growth, but then I don't know what to right. do with the corals. Because <laughs> I don't like to sell my corals. I just like to give them away, maybe, or whatever. But. Um, 
So we had a question from somebody here that uh, I wanted to ask you guys. Um, this is from Reef and Beef, and this person says they're not related to Reef Beef. But um, the question for you uh, experts is, I have a 350-gallon bare bottom with large SPS colonies and just found acro-eating flatworms killed a fireworks colony. I'm assuming that's an, uh, an SPS. And any advice on an in-tank treatments to try and save my SPS? All I can say is get a turkey baster and start blowing those flatworms off the corals. Or get a powerhead. Okay. Because once they them. jump, once they're off the corals, fish eat them. But the fish can't seem to hunt them down on the corals themselves. Uh, in tank treatments, none of them work. No. You're talking about the stuff that uh, uh, is out there in terms of... Um, um, Solutions, products specifically made to fight aggravating flatworm infestations in tank treatments. Yeah, like flatworm exit and things like that have no effect on them. And the, the, the old school treatments of like levamisole and stuff like that are too toxic to everything else. Uh, well, I'm gonna have um, I'm gonna have Claude Schumacher on next week from Fauna Marine, and okay. so I'm gonna ask him about about because they got a product aggravating flatworm X. So we'll uh, we'll yeah. talk about that. The, the other you know, potential solution. I've tried a lot of different there, there, the other things. The solution and, is to get a powerhead and put a flexible tube on it and just run that and shoot that over the corals. The flow from that. Because if you do the ball base after about five minutes, you lose all feeling in your hand. So I have gone to using uh, a, a powerhead <laughs> with a hose on it and based them that way. And if they're really bad, you can stick that in a bucket of uh, fresh water. If the tank's big enough, you can do five gallons of fresh water, not really screw up your salinity too much. The fresh water really knocks them off. But basically, you just have to learn to live um, with them. What about natural uh, predators? Yeah. Because I know the um, Chris Meckley, you know, utilizes a, a, a peppermint shrimp from a certain part of um, Florida that um, he says has, yeah. um, you know, been effective in terms of keeping the uh you know eggs you know but he brings in a lot of stuff so he uh he he, he believes that that those peppermint shrimp are effective i had andrew sandler on the live stream a, a few weeks ago and he did some experimentation with some peppermint shrimp from australia the very very small species of peppermint shrimp and he said in that very controlled experiment in a tank that just i think it was a small tank that um really had nothing else except for some infected um corals or flat frags that those Peppermint shrimp did eat the eggs. What do you What do you guys feel about peppermint shrimp or even fish? I know, but the problem is you have wrasses in your tank. They'll eat those shrimp. And pseudochromus yeah. will eat them because I have pseudochromus. I have peppermint. Shrimp. A back black cap basslet that just will chew on those shrimps and eat them like this. <laughs> Hawkfish. The meal. You know. So if you only have an acro tank with no fish. You can throw these shrimp in there and let them do something. But in general, it's hard. You know, I mean, even the shrimp, it's not like you put one or two shrimp and you're done. You don't have to yeah. put 50 of them in there. What, you know? The one thing I did when I used to be younger and crazier and was always experimenting is when I would get in colonies and I could see the flatworms on there, they would go into their quarantine tank, but I would also put some fish in there and I would try to train the fish to eat them by basting them, and that was the only thing I fed them. And so they got to the point where they were starving enough that they would start picking at some of the words. But you have to put in enough of the fish to keep them in check. You're never going to get rid of all of them, 
But you, what you want to do is just keep the population down. So I would put in like six six-lined wrasses, six yellow wrasses, yellow chorus wrasses, uh, six helicharis wrasses. Put that many in at a time and get them accustomed to eating the flatworms before you put them into the tank. And they did a much better job. They did help to keep it in check. The name and I both had major problems with those probably, what, five, seven years ago? And they really haven't been much of a problem since then for the most part. No. That's the other thing I'm thinking about lately is these orange spot filefish. Mm. You know, that would be something worth experimenting with. Because I, all, I, I see them picking stuff off the corals. And I, they're not eating pops. Right? So they're picking something off these corals. You know, would they be the ones who might pick off small uh, flatworms and... Uh, the red bugs and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, copepods, You know. So, again, I can't try it in my tank because right now I don't see any aggravating flatworms. <clears throat> but for somebody who wants to experiment with it, that might be an experiment worth trying. And your orange spotted fish are fat and healthy after, what, three years? Yeah. I mean, that those are the fish I love to see every time I come up because they're just such an interesting-looking fish and you don't see them in many tanks. It... Yeah, there's a there's a the, pair of them. The yeah. fear is that they yeah. eat corals. Is that the fear? Is that why more people don't put them in the tank, or they're just the fear is that they're uh, just very hard to keep? They're both. They're they they come in typically in really bad shape, all usually emaciated, and to get them to start feeding. And two, it is, they've always been thought of as uh, obligate polyp eaters. But I don't know anyone that's put them in the tank, then uh, dissected them and seen what was in their mm. gut. I'm not a big advocate of doing that. <laughs> But I have been accused of not testing that something ate things on that, in that account in the past. But that's the only way you're going to know what they're ex actually eating in a reef tank. Well, the other thing I look at and go, there's a million polyps in my mm. tank at least. Yeah. If they ate 10 a day, they're not going to catch up <laughs> even. If they no, because if they're not like your Lenardi rats, they're not this big. They're no, tiny. no, these are so small. Yeah, they're really small. I've seriously thought about adding to my tank, and it's always an iffy proposition. I mean, if you're a big fan of polyp extension, you should not add no. these fish to that. Because you're not going to see polyp extension during the day. Okay? But if you go in at night, an hour after the lights are off, turn your lights on, and every coral has its polyps, nighttime polyps extended. So it's not like, you know, they're preventing them from they're ever just taking, opening. They're, they're just, just taking cover the during day. the day. Um, Reefkeeper yeah. says, I fought them for two years. The only thing that finally worked was chopping all colonies out and running them through multiple dips. It was such a pain. That's one approach. Yeah. But you got to get all the encrusted stuff off the rocks, yeah. too. Him and I both have been there, done that tanks. Too. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Let's hope we lost our hair. I've been there and done that. Past. We're not doing that, no. Um, I mean, when you have the amount of corals that I have in my tank, it would pretty much destroy the tank to get yeah. rid of those platforms if I did it that way. I did that once, okay? I did that back in 2013. How'd that turn out? When, when I switched. <laughs> it turned out bad. When I was switching my lights, and I said, this might be a good time for me to pull out all the acros and dip them and do all this stuff in a separate tank, and I ended up you, killing you all You ended up killing acros. all the acros. Yeah, because they don't, like, big colonies don't like to be moved. Secondly, you move them into a separate tank. It's not the same conditions. 
you know, it, it's not as nice of a water even, and you're dipping them every other day. You stress them so much that they just what die. Uh, does does the type of dip matter? What were you dipping them in? I was bear. dipping them in yeah. bear. Yeah. No, what, what's funny is Sanjay picks on me because I'm always experimenting. But I just wrote an article on overcoming a wipeout of your tank. A lot of that is based on what Sanjay has gone through <laughs> over the years. You're learning from his mistakes, Mike? <laughs> I, we learn from each other's mistakes. We've learned right. a lot from each other over the years. And I, I did this and you did that. And it, it, we, we learn from each other. And that, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy writing is because every time I'm writing, I try to look things up and learn things. So by learning new things, that's, the, that, that's part of the purpose of why I write. And seeing people like Sanjay and my other friends, we're always comparing notes and going, you know what, this worked, this didn't work. Okay, why didn't it work? Because it should have worked. And we, we learn all the time. And that's one of the reasons why we've been doing this for 40 years. There's always something new to learn. And as we were talking about in the beginning, there's always something. We always lose a coral for seemingly no reason, something stupid we did, and you're going, geez, if I had two more minutes, you know, rushing is the worst thing you can do in this hobby. And we've all lost corals because we rushed at some point. I mean, nobody takes it into account when we did something stupid <laughs> that you kick yourself for. You go, two more minutes. Why did I rush that? Half, half the problems you end up with are stupid problems. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. They are people problems. <laughs> you know? And the other half is cheap equipment problems. <laughs> yeah, well, you've lost from overheating. I've lost from overheating. That's actually... The, uh, the article this week is on uh, temperature control and dehumidification because we've all lost tanks because the heaters failed in some way or another or the chilling yeah. system has failed in one way or another. I mean, I lost my 1,200-gallon tank because the circuit breaker for the air conditioner and the chiller for the tank, a two-horsepower chiller, went out and my ex-wife never flipped it back on and it was 97 degrees outside. So it didn't make it. <laughs> Um, Polo1126, thank you so much for that very generous uh, super chat. Love the content. Thanks for assembling this wealth of reef-keeping knowledge tonight. Appreciate that. Um, so we were also talking before the live stream about um, GFCIs, and I was telling you guys I had a couple of floods due to some uh, GFCIs uh, tripping prematurely, and, and we were talking, and you guys, yeah, I don't, we don't use any, put anything on GFCIs. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. It's, it's, it's a nightmare waiting to happen. I lost all the fish in one tank because the GFCIs blew out and the flow stopped and the oxygen in the tank went down. And overnight, all the big fish passed away from uh, lack of oxygen because the uh, power heads, the return pump were all in the GFCI. And the next day, the GFCI was gone. The corals all did fine, amazingly, but all the fish suffered. I mean, it was only like seven fish in a 40-gallon tank. It wasn't a ton, but it was still enough to really irritate me. Yeah, I had these circuits installed, um, I think, last um, this past winter or something like that. So I had, them, I had them installed and really running without any issues for many months until this summer. And then we had a lot of rain, thunderstorms, lightning, and I started to get a lot of circuits that uh, started tripping. And, and right. so my return pumps were also on the GFCIs. And, um, you know, I think um, it happened twice. So I had two different floods, both systems flooded. And, you know, one mistake was that um, I had uh, too much water in both systems because even if the power cuts, they, oh. they shouldn't be 
overflowing the sump, right? So that was that yep. was one uh, that was one mistake. Right. And um, you know, somebody did mention to me that you know probably one reason why um, you know because you, you test that stuff out, right? You always try to like cut all the power and you wait till the water stops and you want to kind of see what that limit is and then plan accordingly. But I think for me, the floods probably happened after a couple of hours because uh, one potential reason is the um, the powerheads inside the tanks were still running. You know, there was a circuit with the return pumps at trips, so the powerheads were still running inside the tanks, causing water to go over the uh, the overflow. You know, in those uh, in those two hours, and then I also had some dosers that were on different circuits that did not trip. They were dosing, so it was kind of like a whole thing going on in terms of different circuits tripping and other circuits not tripping. Um, so I have since taken the return pumps off of the uh, the GFCIs, but you know, my whole fear is the uh, getting shocked part of it. And that's not something that you guys are concerned with at all. You still get shocked even with a GFCI. It's just the short shock. Uh, it'll probably prevent you from getting electrocuted. But I try to run. I One, one of my rules is when I'm working on the tanks, I wear rubber-soled clogs just to prevent that from being a problem. Because <laughs> I've been shocked so many times, and I've never gotten to the point where I really enjoy it. <laughs> so I wear the rubber clogs all the time now. Because one, there's always a little splash of water somewhere. And if there's anything electrical, but even when I'm wearing the clogs, if there's a little bit of electrical current and I have little cuts in my fingers, I can still feel it. So I know, okay, something is leaking electricity in here. And that's when I'll start to do the flipping of the switches to find out, oh, it's a heater. Oh, it's a power head. Oh, it's a cable that come off. Because one time I, I was wearing them and I'm still feeling what I consider a pretty strong shock. And I had a Eva or uh, oh, what the heck's the uh, inexpensive uh, pump manufacturer, the uh, Jabeo, and the power cord from the Jabeo had completely worn off, and there was just a free electrical line moving in the tank. And I, I felt the electricity, but I couldn't figure it out where it was coming from. Flipped everything off. Finally, found it was that. Went to pull it out and found out there's just a plug in the tank. It wasn't even connected to anything. It was just a loose electrical line. And that convinced me even more. Always wear rubber-soled shoes working on a cement floor <laughs> with a tank. The Rios were famous for... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rios were really so, um, champion... And virtually every heater will crack, and you won't know, and, and then water will slowly leach in, and you'll just get this electrical shock, and <laughs> something will bump it, and then you'll go, whoa, this woke me up. Um, so what do you think about grounding a tank? I've, I used to do that, but all I see is that as another potential way to get electrocuted. That's what I think, too. Okay. The ground the tank, <laughs> there's a higher probability of the shock running through you. Through you. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, so I, I don't do the grounding probes. I used to do them all the time. Now, rubber-soled shoes and feeling something in my cut fingers, which are virtually always cut. So it's a pretty good idea of when there's electrical current. I mean, I don't really have anything submersible pumps anymore. All my pumps are external. Nothing is submersible. So there's no chance of that happening. The only thing that is submerged in there is the heaters. Are you running the NIOS reactors? Because I'm running those. Not on the big tank. No. Okay, yeah, I'm running those on every tank. And yeah. the, the first series were bad. The second series is much, much better. 
Yeah, I've been just basically have nothing in the big tank. There's nothing submersible. I've got a lot of submersible stuff. Um, Champion Lighting and Supply says, uh, I don't use GFCI on pumps, but definitely use them on heaters and UV sterilizers. Mark Vanderwall. Hey, what's happening there, Mark? Heaters and UV are a good yeah. idea on GFCI. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so no life support system should be on GFCI. Yeah. No, I, I would agree. Okay, heaters so if and your tank, sterilizers, if something anything that can really shock you. The problem is you got to design the circuit so it plugs into the plug that you have that are on exactly. And I don't do electrical work because my goal in life is not to burn down the house. <laughs> so bringing in electricians just to do that kind of stuff, I, I've, I've had it done, but it gets to be costly. for, And then I end up calling them back to take it out. Yeah, because I, I called my electrician to, and said to him, well, you know, I'm having all these issues with my GFCIs. Um, Maybe you can come over and, and take some or all of them out. And when he got over to my place, he's like, listen, it's code. I can't take these GFCIs out. But what I can do is create a different um, non-GFCI circuit for your return pumps. And if you want to plug the return pump into right. that, you can. Um, yeah. But, you know, and I, and I also mentioned this to you guys uh, before we got, got on the live stream. I do have these really cool devices. I think they cost about 25 bucks a piece. And they're called the uh, GFI Notify. I, did a, I think I did a video on them. So what you could do is you could plug them into a uh, GFCI circuit and program them. To, so when, when they um, lose power for six minutes, you will get both a text and an email message saying that that um, circuit has um, been offline, which is great because if you're away and you see that and you've got a tank sitter, then you can notify that tank sitter. Or if you're around and you get that text, then you know that that's something tripped, which is, which is good. So... Yeah, I get I get texted all the time by my phone more than I get texted by my friends, telling me uh, I have a leak, uh, the water's too hot, the water's too cold. Every I get alerts for everything, and it, I think it's really worthwhile to set up a system where you do get those kind of messages. The only problem is they typically do it at like two or three o'clock in the morning, mm. and I hear this little ding, and so if I hear any kind of ding, I can't sleep the rest of the night because I'm worried that something is uh, broken or gone off. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna. You can be like me, turn all the all the ding noises off, and enjoy your night's <laughs> sleep and deal with it in the morning. But, no, I, that, but I worry that I miss something. something Paranoia. Tragedy can take place. It could happen within an hour. It'd be bad news, right? Yep. Sanjay, you were you were telling us before the show you had an issue in terms of uh, some water on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> this morning. This morning. <laughs> Right now, my system's all running great, and everything is good, you know, and then all of a sudden, I wake up, you know, well, I didn't wake up in the middle of the night when it sent me the alarms, but since my messaging is, you know, it makes no noise, I wake up, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, I, you know, I check my phone, and there was all these alarm messages, and I go, what happened here? And basically said, my, my sump level is too low. And I just looked at that, and I go... 67 gallons in the sump and it's showing almost a reading of zero mm. as the level i'm like i told my wife i said it's all dumped on the floor i can tell you from right now that all my water is on the floor in the sump so i went down you know look around what might have caused it first thing went through my head is there's a leak in the tank <laughs> and <laughs> the sump just emptied into the tank and it just drained out but there was nothing leaking around the tank and then i noticed that the algae scrubber was there was a lot of water around the algae scrubber 
And I opened it up and sure enough, you know, there was that thing was absolutely full. The algae had washed off the screen and clogged the outflow. This large chunk came off and literally, and then the, it also clogged the overflow in that algae scrubber. So now, you know, I went back to my apex and looked at it. At 310, the sump was full. <laughs> and at 330, it was down to nothing. So in half an hour or 40 minutes, it basically emptied out 67 gallons of water, put it on the floor. And the worst part of it is, you know, the first thing that went through my head is all my pumps, external pumps, so they're sucking mm. from the sump. They were all probably burned out or whatever. They were running dry. And uh, they ran like that for about four or five hours based on what I saw. But luckily, everything survived and there was no real damage. I always keep, you know, 75, 75 to 60 gallons of water with me, on, you know, in case I need it. So I was able to refill the sump and uh, go from there. But it's something that hasn't happened before, right? I've been using the scrubber for three years. Mm. Never happened before. <laughs> well, like we said, it's always something. It's it's always something. It's always something. So Sanjay, um, external pumps. That's that seems to be uh, you know years ago. I think that was a, a more common thing to uh, to run external pumps from the um, from the sump to the uh, to the tank for uh, for returns. What um, are you are you doing that because it was designed uh, a long time ago and uh, you haven't made the change or yeah I mean my tanks been is I always use external pumps partly because I always want to manage mm. the heat in the tank without using a chiller and when you start running internal pumps all that heat is in the water so I always been a fan of keeping the heat out and always ran external pumps. Uh, so all my pumps are literally are running external. Even my closed loop pump is running external. Uh, so yeah, everything is pretty much external in my tank as far as any water flows. Now you did that. A part of the problem is also because of my old history of using rios and having them leach copper into into yeah. the tank and all those kinds of issues. And I was like, from then on, ah, there's never going to be a submersible <laughs> pump in my tank. <laughs> That's going to be. Even my skimmer, I you know, I, it's external. Yeah. So all the pumps are pretty much external. The Ecotech uh, pumps are nice because all the electricity is outside again. So you know, there's no power heads, that no wires running into the tank for anything. Yeah. No. Yeah. Understood. Um... Well, you, you when did you stop using your downdraft skimmer and switch over to a conventional skimmer? That was like. What two three years ago? Yeah, but, but before COVID. Okay, so three three and a half years yeah. ago. I mean that thing was just falling apart. But even that one was running with an external pump. So, is that yeah. the one you uh, had kept together with like uh, spit and glue and all that stuff and, and duct tape and uh, yeah. super glue? Yeah. Absolutely, epoxy putty and <laughs> super glue and. Uh... Well, hopefully you didn't throw that one out. That should be in a museum someplace. Uh... I did throw it out. <laughs> It, it, when I took it out and I was moving it, it just broke and pieces <laughs> fell off. It was time. <laughs> it was um, time. Twenty years yeah, or more. Yeah, I think more. you got a good use out of that. Well, that was that was when you yeah. cleaned your sump for the first time too, wasn't it? You did all these big changes at once. 
Yeah. There wasn't like an inch or inch and a half of mum in my sump. You know, I had um, I had Steve <laughs> Wiest on my show um, last week, and you guys know Steve, right? He yeah, um, yeah, he's got yeah. another. Uh, he he came back into the hobby with another tank, a four hundred gallon uh, tank, and we're going through his system. Yeah, I bumped into him at a Macna or somewhere once, you know, and I'm like, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "Well, yeah. I'm setting up a tank." He's uh... <laughs> no, his tank is actually in my second book, and it was one of the most spectacular tanks I've ever seen in terms of aquascaping. In terms of how the layout was, I mean, it looked three times as big as it was. Actually, I was at his house and I saw how it was laid out. It was amazing. So I'm glad he came back. It was it was six feet yeah. front to yeah. back. And and so he's got a new tank, a um, it's a 400 gallon tank that uh, we went through on on last week's episode. It's three years old now. And um, check him out on YouTube under Steve Weist. He's got a he just uploaded a video of the tank and uh, it. Okay, it I looks very familiar in terms of it. what his uh, yeah. his prior tank looked like. But yeah. um, the reason why I'm bringing him up is you talked about dirty sumps and, and what have you. He he said that he actually cleans out his sump after every water change. That is meticulous. <laughs> I, do, I do mine as do well. You? Yeah, five gallons comes out of the uh, uh, sump. Five gallons comes out of the frag tank. Five gallons comes out of the LPS tank. All the rest comes out of the big. Tank. No, he he actually he actually. See, I'm not scared of the He actually like drains. What? He actually drains the sump and wipes it down. Uh, I get the sump down to where it's a 180 gallon sump, and by the time it's done, there's 30 gallons yeah. in the sump. <laughs> I don't know why you guys are so afraid of detritus. <laughs> it's, it's harmless. It's harmless. This is the well, that's, I have, that's why sand, you're not fast. The sand bed in my train's at night. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. That's <laughs> not now. Not now. Well, for 10 years. My, you know, the sand bed in my tank has been set up since I set up that tank in 2006. It's the same sand bed. It's probably full of detritus. I don't care. It's inert by now. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> It's contributing to the biofauna and everything. Your, your tank has hit the equilibrium because you weren't monkeying yeah. around with it. Mine has taken longer to hit the equilibrium because I'm always monkeying around with it. Now that I've stopped, I may go to the detritus school, but uh, that's doubtful. I mean, uh, what is detritus going to do? If you accumulate it in a spot, that's where I get cyano. That's where I get algae blooms. So I try not to have a dead spot. If you have it moving around, I'm sure it's fine. But if you have a dead spot, you have problems typically. You don't get cyano when your nitrates are at 90 and your phosphates at 2. <laughs> oh, I remember. I, I, I was the guy doing the tests with Kevin, and we're looking at these numbers going, this can't be right. There's no algae in this tank, and these numbers are literally off the scale. We had to dilute the hand of uh, water in order to get the measurements because they were so high. <laughs> Um, so I saw this question fly by in the chat a while before, and I want to go back to it. Cassandra, you mentioned something to me when you were here at my house about sea cucumbers and how you would never have them in a tank. And, uh, so reef with me said, uh, I recall Mr. Yoshi had issues with a sea cucumber killing fish. Can you have him elaborate on that issue? Right. I mean, I, for, I, for the longest time would always get these black sea cucumbers, and I thought they were the awesomest thing because they would keep my sand clean. They were always moving around, keep
keeping the sand clean and everything. And they always stayed in the sand. Why would you worry about the sand right? clean? You're not the guy that worries about the tritus. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because I had food for them. There was food for them, right? So I had them in the tank and they were there for years and years. They were perfectly fine. Nothing was wrong. And then this happened in the Penn State tank first, okay? They get a call at five o'clock in the morning from Penn State. The janitors called me and go, hey, you better come down here. All your fish are dead. I said, what do you mean they're dead? He said, well, they're floating upside down. They got to be dead. I said, are you sure they're not sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went down there and looked at the tank. And sure enough, things were just dying. Right? And I couldn't figure out why. What happened? So you, know, you just chalk it off to some accident and you know move on. Didn't realize what happened. And then the same thing happens in my tank at home. The first time it happened, I lost a bunch of angelfish just overnight. Couldn't figure out what happened. Right. So again, I you know don't know what happened. I never saw the cucumber stuck in any pump or anywhere. Maybe it got completely sucked in, who knows. But then it happens the third time. It happens on my smaller tank, I have the 75-gallon uh, Red Sea tank. Same thing. I always check my tanks at night, fish were all fine, go in the morning, and the fish are dead or dying. And that's this time I actually saw the sea cucumber stuck in the pump. And that's when I realized, I said, yep, I had black sea cucumbers in that tank and the Penn State tank. and now I can tie the threads together. It's definitely sea cucumbers that did it. You know, sometimes they they just get shredded and you don't even yeah. know. Yeah. Right? This time I caught it. So first two times I never even noticed it. This time I actually caught it wrapped around my MP40. Yeah. But that'll even happen so. if they get highly irritated. They'll just throw out their guts, and when they do that, it's toxic to a closed system as well. So, I mean, some of these sea cucumbers were like 18 inches Whoa. long. Oh, okay. <laughs> they Monsters. Were they were big. Monsters. Yeah. Um, they would never get up the glass. You know, never seen them get up the glass. Once in a while, they will get up on the glass. Yep. And once they get up on the glass, they're, they can head to the pump. So, yeah. um, I wanted to ask you both about ICP testing. So Sanjay, um, you wrote an article on reef builders, and then Mike, I saw you also wrote an article on reef builders about um, ICP testing. So um, let's let's talk about that. I mean, um, you know, I think Sanjay, <clears throat> what um, for for those that didn't like read the article, what what would you say would be the uh, the main findings of your uh, your analysis? I think the main thing was, I mean, this is something that people may have already known. I just kind of wanted to make people aware of the variability among these tests. Okay. The whole idea was not to find out who's good and who's bad, but just to show people that, look, you know, you guys are basing your whole approach to keeping all these levels of these trace elements at certain specific values. But if you look at the variability in these tests, right, does it really matter? You know, do those specific values really matter? Yeah, I, I concur with Sanjay, but I, I did it as, as sort of ICP tests or sort of the top of the pyramid. 
you got to have the bottom of the pyramid good, starting with salinity and then your major trace elements, your nutrient levels. Then by the time you get to ICP, you want to make sure all those other things are in balance in the proper levels. If they're not in the proper levels, your ICP test can show everything or nothing. It's really not going to matter if the bottom of the pyramid really isn't in balance. That's what you have to look at first, particularly when you're starting out in this hobby. You don't want to get tied up in the minutia. Work on the big things, and more or less the majority of things will fall into place. I mean, ICP has, has utility, and there's some things, but I don't think every trace element is as important as every other trace element. I think there's some that are more important that we found, maybe like fluoride, maybe like nickel, maybe like a couple others. And if you're lacking those or overdosing those, you may have problems. But it all comes down to start with the big things and then look at that as secondary in, in terms of long range, how much it's going to help you or not. But there is variability. I ran six, he ran six. And there's variability between all six on virtually everything. So, but, you know, it's the range of variability that's important to me. I look at them and I go, the range is 30%. I really don't know where those numbers really are. Yeah, when you're looking at a okay. part per billion or part per million thing, and there's a uh, three to five or ten percent difference, you know, if you have a point one or a point one four, and you're looking at a part per billion, how much is that really going to matter? And how good is that test at measuring that difference? Right. So in the end, it maybe really doesn't matter. What about matter. if you know you've got unless you really have something way off what the scale? What about yeah. if you have um, you know, let's say you're uh, you can only afford to run two different tests. Right for your uh, for your system, your tank, and you got one test that's coming back, and it's saying several key um, elements are not at uh, are at zero. They're not at any level. And then you've got another test coming back saying that uh, you know maybe they're uh, they're registering. So how do you act on that information if you've got one service that's saying you need to dose this stuff, and another service saying that uh, well you potentially uh, are, are you know okay. What I, what I would do first is try to get a baseline from one test and then rely on that test. That is, if your tank looks great, do an ICP test to see what your levels are. But even amongst some of the manufacturers, there's variability. If you send water to the same guy and send two or three tests to them, often there'll be variability just within that company. So that's even a bigger problem to me than the variability between companies. But if I have a baseline where I've looked at my tank looks great and all these levels are here, here, and here, and I have this tested down, and the next time my tank doesn't look quite so good and I send it in and these are off a little bit, I at least have something to work from. The problem that I see with a lot of people that do ICP testing is they send it in when they're having a problem. That doesn't give you any baseline. You then have a baseline as a problem. That's not where you want to start from. You want to start from when the tank is good. So say you have, you know, variables, variables X, Y, and Z are all good, and A is way off the scale, you know that that's the problem. But if you started with that as your baseline, you don't know what to work from, and you can't really adjust it because you're already in the woods. And you're basing it on, okay, this guy says I'm over, but that may not have any effect at all on your tank. That may be how your tank is best. It's the other ones that are off. So you really need to do the baseline to work from if you're going to do ICP testing. To me, the bigger problem is we don't know what these elements do. We don't know what they do. 
Okay, there's for a lot of these elements, there's no science scientific reason, at least established so far, that says this is what they do. So why are you killing your knickers in a bunch, you know, over something you don't even know anything about what they actually do? You know, what is the threshold of high level versus low level? I mean, you saw my test results. I posted them on there. The nickel was way high compared to anybody else's tank. My clothes are not dying. Well, actually, there's a paper showing that nickel's really good at preventing diseases, so that may have been why your corals look healthy. Maybe that's why your coral, your, your tank turn around, Sanjay. Yeah, that could be it. Sanjay, you actually, so we, we don't have any, any, any really strong basis for making a lot of these statements. Oh, I need to put rubidium. Well, where did rubidium come from now? You know, vanadium was bad enough, now it's rubidium. And selenium you know? and beryllium. It's fluoride. I mean, you know, what is the rationale? Is what I all I want to know is show me the rationale. Not just, oh, my tank is so much better when I did this. You know? That's always been the argument. Oh, do this and tank's gonna be better. Oh, put amino acids, your tank's gonna be great. Now amino acid seems to be falling out of favor. Why did they get in the favor in the first place? <laughs> well, that that I can answer you, know? you Sandy. That came from the Italian juice and papone in the late 1990s, and they were using human growth hormone, you. and people tried to max the growth hormone by taking out the amino acids. That's where that started. They were putting human growth hormones into their tanks yep. in the 90s. To try and supplement it as an uh, amino acid. So, yeah. Sonia, we all know the Dick Parent story. There's a zillion different things you can add to your tank that may or may not be better for you. are doing it now with ammonium hydroxide. You're doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just shortcutting the system. I'm giving the corals what they want. That's because you don't care the about detritus. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Well, Swanji, you don't care about even go to the Dick Perrin method. I think that would solve all the problem. You really cut out the middleman. It might. I'm, I, you can put urea in your tank perfectly fine. Yeah. But I'm sure it, the corals will actually take urea over nitrates. Over, over ammonium hydroxide, too. Yeah. Um, so. You know... One thing that uh, I've been told, and I've had conversations with uh, Chris Wood at Captivate Aquaculture, he's like, you know, there's different uh, ICP test companies out there. There's a lot of different ways to go, but um, stick with one, pay attention to your corals, and don't overcomplicate it. Yeah. Well, him and I have yeah. had this discussion multiple times. Why, when we were doing this in the mid to late 90s, we had halides. We had Kalkwasser, and we had spectacular colored corals. Now, all of a sudden, we have to do this and this and this and this. Granted, some of these corals we're keeping now are much more delicate than the corals we <clears> kept <throat> back then. But life was much simpler then. And what's funny to me is, is that all these coral growers, to cut corals and grow them, don't emulate what Sanjay's doing. If they want to get the fastest growth, this is the guy that grows corals faster than anyone else I know. But I don't say, I hear people call him up every day, hey, Sanjay, what can I do to really maximize the growth in my tanks? Which kind of boggles my mind, because for 30 years, there's no one that has grown corals faster or more successfully than Sanjay has over the last 30 years. No one. And I mean, I've seen I mean, all I, I, I look at it and go, science says, photosynthesis, is going to drive growth. Okay, 
because photosynthesis leads to food production, which is what you need for growth. What maximizes photosynthesis? I bet it's light. Light. <laughs> it's light. That's why it's you want to now fun. take a coral. You want to take a coral that can absorb light over a large part of the spectrum. And now you're going to give it only blue light? Well, sure, it'll grow. But it's got the capacity to use all these other spectrums that you're not giving it. So give it all that spectrum. You know, let it do the photosynthesis. You know, there it maximizes food production. And it's going to lead to more growth. You know, so people go, oh, you know, it's it's metal halide. No, it's not just metal halide. I can get the same growth or similar growth if I had similar wattage of LEDs. If you're going to take a 400 watt metal halide bulb and replace that with 100 watts of LED, it's not the same ball game. No, it's much more it's focused. Not, first of all, you only got 100 watts to deal with. Okay. And I don't think these LEDs are four times more efficient than a metal halide. In fact, I have numbers to show that their efficiency is only about 30% of converting your wall plug power to light. So is metal halide. You know, you're converting electrical energy to light. That efficiency people have seen already, it's about 30 to 30%, 35%. You want the most efficient Conversion, go to a sodium vapor light. That'll do almost 35 to 40%. <laughs> but that's not the right spectrum for us, right? It's too yellow. So all these people who, sure, you buy the corals, they look great under blue light, but you really cannot get the growth under that blue light. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. I guarantee you all these coral farmers who, don't who only show you blue light, blue light, blue light, to grow corals, they're turning on and ramping up the white lights for at least for a few hours a day. Those look good for pictures. Not really. <laughs> you have to put that yellow filter to get the picture. So the orange filter. To make yeah. it more realistic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I just I do mean, I've, I've been out on dozens of reefs. I've never seen corals that look like the corals in our tank, ever. I mean, everything is various shades of beige, brown, occasionally green, occasionally a pink, and very, very occasionally a blue or a purple. It's, we've, I mean, looking back at Stuber's corals from the 90s, that was a chocolate brown, as chocolate brown as you could get, Acropora. Over the years, if you look at ORAs now, it's green, purple, and blue. We've totally changed the coral by the lighting we're giving it over time. And Sanjay's exactly right. You can't grow them as fast as he's growing them because nobody does that. But if you remember the pictures we showed of his tank three, four years ago, we showed his tank under all the white light, and then we showed it under the blue light. The colors are all there, but they don't show up until you put the blue light on. Under the white lights, the growth was all there. Chris C., Professor Photon has spoken. Brian Scott, amen, Sanjay, great bearded reef. Love the daylight look. Brian Scott, 6,500K all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I really, if you really want to grow corals, those are the yeah. bulbs you want. Yeah, go to the six, Iowa Saki 6,500. They actually have Sanjay's picture on the bulb. <laughs> They should have put it on. Um, Adrian Fang, thank you so much for that very generous uh, super chat. Keep keep up the great work. I always love your shows and guests. Question, I've been running activated carbon in a mesh bag. Will it pull out traces and affect SPS coloration? Thoughts on that? 
I mean, carbon pulls out everything. It's a non-discriminate remover of everything. And uh, one back, one last thing back to trace elements on ICP. Looking at the literature and, and talking with everyone, there I could not find anywhere in the literature where it says that corals are taking up trace elements directly. I mean, adding this or that is, for the most part, not going to be taken up directly. But what does take it up are different bacteria, and bacteria are what coral feed on predominantly. As much as we like to say that we're feeding the tanks, realistically, when we're feeding them trace elements of food, what we're actually feeding is the bacteria that then feed the corals. So it's not as, as straightforward as I'm dumping in uh, 10 milliliters of selenium, and that's causing my corals to turn purple. It's more, okay, the bacteria that consume selenium may then be consumed by the, the corals. If someone has more literature to show that corals are taking up specific trace elements, I would love to see it because I've not been able to find it. Andrew Sandler's in the house. What's happening there, Andrew? Um, so a couple of things. Um, let's get back to the question about um, activated carbon. Then I got another. Well, you know what? Let me, um, let me ask you guys. I mean, my, my thoughts on activated carbon is we did some tests on it a while back, not looking at trace elements, but it, it, def, it reduced the total organic carbon mm -hmm. in your tank. It dropped it down. It drops it down rapidly. Yeah, I run carbon uh, so every other week, see, every month. You know, I run it for a week, turn it off, run it for a week, turn it off. The main reason I run it is to keep the yellow out of the water. Once again, you get better light penetration when you have white water versus yellow water you get better growth when you have clear water versus yellow water um one last question for you both regarding um icp testing um question for both of you guys did um did you guys change your habits in terms of icp testing and dosing traces after you've completed your experiments i have gone to more frequent icp testing once i did establish the baseline and I did, uh, the one thing I did add more of was fluoride, which not all the ICP testers do. And I did see a significant improvement in uh, encrusting of the corals and in growth in some corals. Not all, but the majority of them seem to prefer a higher level of fluoride to a lower level of fluoride. That is the one thing that, that changed dramatically when I did the ICP test. Yeah, for, for me, fluoride, when I started dosing fluoride based on a, um, a, a low amount reported on ICP testing, I noticed a, um, and that was the only thing I changed in the, uh, when I was dosing, the blues popped a lot more. I was seeing a lot more blue tips on corals. Yeah, I saw the growth tips dramatically improve when I started adding the fluoride. Yeah, your tanks must have sucked before then. Yeah, my, no, the levels were my level of fluoride was 0.31, which is the lowest a lot of people had seen. So I, I bumped it up to where it's now 1.21, and I have seen much faster growth, much bigger growth tips on the corals. And when you get growth tips, you get better coloration. I mean, I, I try a lot of things, right? I mean, I hear things, I see people doing things, and I go, well, let me try it myself and see, because I will not talk about things that I don't try. I don't feel comfortable. I have no experience with it. There's no sense in me talking about hearsay, right? So I actually always try these things. I go, okay, you guys are waving the fluoride flag today. Okay, I'll take, I'll try that and see if it makes any difference. I personally didn't notice any difference. Okay. So, Fine, I did my little test. It's all a visual test anyway. Maybe it depends on who you use for the ICP test okay. for getting that fluorine level, you know? 
Yeah. <laughs> hey. You know? I mean, you look at the numbers and you go, who should I believe to begin with? And, I, and I've also used three different fluorides. So maybe so it's not 1.6. Maybe it's 1.7. And they all seemingly produce the same effect, which is better growth tips, from my opinion. Hey, I got more growth than you, so I got better growth tips to begin you with. You run, run higher lighting than me. We know that. <laughs> but... To me, it's always been interesting. You know, people went to LEDs, which are lower powered to begin with, and then you have only some limited amount of spectrum. You know, you're not going to get that growth. No. Greg Carroll said, I heard that Iwasaki had planned to put Sanjay's picture on the box. They canceled, they canceled <laughs> their plan when Sanjay cheated on them with Ushio. <laughs> <laughs> he broke their heart. <laughs> <laughs> um here's another question from blue basin aquatics do a uv sterilizer work against carbon dosing so i guess the question is um if you're dosing bacteria carbon dosing trying to accelerate that process should you be running a uv sterilizer or should you turn it i think the bacteria that primarily consume the carbon are on substrate and not a lot of free swimming uh i found uv if i have a uh bacterial plague I, I know you've had one and i've had one where the water sort of gets suddenly cloudy and it's a bacterial overgrowth from when i overdosed vodka so in that case the uv sterilizer did help to clarify it but adding it for a long time i've not seen the uv sterilizer have much of an impact on it in my tank and i was running 150 watt uv pond sterilizer we normally run uv sterilizers twice or thrice on my tank only to deal with the dinoflagellates that I had at one time. And that was it. Yeah, they, they, I really haven't run. Yeah, for certain UV. species of dinoflagellates, it works phenomenally well. But for the non free swimming one, it doesn't do anything. What about using activated carbon and um, UV sterilizers to keep, you know, um, organics down to help potentially prevent cyano from forming? I don't think we can draw that correlation directly. No. You know, I like, I use carbon all the time, smaller quantities. I don't, you know, put lots of carbon and try to strip everything out. I use it in small quantities because I know, I've, I have measurements, I've done the experiments that it drops the total organic carbon. TOC levels drop, you know. And I think one of the problems with a lot of these diseases and stuff is high TOC levels. There's enough papers in the literature to talk about that. Yeah, we've talked about that the last time, Keith, on ICO2 so, and what how problematic it is, particularly now like in the carbon, yep. carbon is very effective in dropping your TOC levels. Ken Feldman did the experiments, and you know we, we spent a lot of time and money on doing those experiments and found that carbon impressive in the in the amount of TOC it can remove and how quickly it removes it. I might remove some trace elements because of course if you're removing bacteria that gets reduced because you've got less TOC, sure you might have less some trace elements, but you know. I think and I look back and I go, why did all of a sudden these trace elements become such a big deal? Right? We've kept tanks for a long time where we didn't bother yeah. about these things. You know, uh, a lot of, and I look back and I, I think there's some things I can attribute reasons to, right? 
One, we've kind of said, oh, we don't need to do many water changes. Right? Fine, you know, it's expensive to do water changes. So now we got to supplement somehow whatever little trace elements that came in with the water, right? We used to run calcium reactors, which essentially ran coral skeleton. So it basically dumped back into the water whatever was embedded in your coral skeleton, and a lot of trace elements were probably embedded in there. Right? I moved to the Destaco reactor, which is essentially using marble chips. All of a sudden now, I'm not adding a lot of those things that were being added by my calcium reactor. Right? So now that forces you into these things where you start saying, okay, what has changed since when I was doing this before versus now? And why is the need for adding these trace elements now that we never cared about before? Sure, you know, we learn a lot over time. And there may be some value to some of the adding of the trace elements. But we still don't have all the dots connected. Right? When you don't have all the dots connected, then you start working on faith and belief. All right? And faith and belief don't work the same way in everybody's tank. No, and the, and the other big difference is that when we started, we all used live, live rock that was full of things, full of different compounds, full of different bacteria that consumed things and did things. Now with so many people starting with dead rock, it's a completely different ballgame. It's not like it was for the first 20 years in the hobby when the live rock gave you a lot of buffer on a lot of different aspects. It doesn't do that, we don't have that anymore. We're working on a much finer line that everything has to be right. But the live rock acted as a buffer and, and provided some cover for not having these kind of things. And like you said, fewer water changes, more calcium reactors, a lot of things have, that seemingly were subtle that made life easier, may in the long run have made things more difficult. Um, yeah. Intrinsic Reap, thank you so much for that super chat uh, comment is tuition fee. <laughs> um, speaking of um, more complicated um, things in terms of the hobby, I, I guess options of uh, bacteria dosing. I'm, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before when I've had you guys on in terms of dosing bacteria to an established um, reef tank. You know, a lot of people do it. And, um, you know, I guess the key question is why do it? You know, bacteria apparently exactly. replicate very quickly in a reef tank. Um, you know, so is there a reason to constantly dose bacteria to a reef tank if they're, well, you know, let's say you dose a certain type of bacteria in a, in a tank and, and uh, is, is that good? Is, is, that, is that enough to introduce at one time? Do you need to keep doing it? No. Is it worth no, it? No, in, talk, in talking with Claude, that's one of his pet peeves. Why would you add a bacterial supplement if the supplement says you have to add it every two weeks? All that is is the bacteria company man, manufacturing a need that isn't necessarily there. Whenever I do bacterial dosing, I get as many different bottles as I can. I add them all at once, and then I don't add them again. Whatever's going to survive is this. If I have to keep adding stuff every week, every two weeks, something's wrong with the bacterium. Because if I have an infection and I don't treat it, that infection from the bacteria is going to continue. The same thing is in your tank. If you add bacterium, if the conditions are right for the bacteria to thrive, they should. If your bacteria is suddenly wiped out and you don't understand why, there's something else going on in your tank, then adding more bacteria isn't going to change or fix. I don't add any of that stuff. 
I mean, I do in the sense that I, people give me samples all the time. Oh, use my product, use this, use this. And I go, sure, I'll use it. You know, it's free. <laughs> I'll dump it in my tank, see what happens. And most of the times, I, I see nothing. Right? And the argument again is A, I don't know what I'm adding. I have no clue what's in those bottles. No. No clue whatsoever. Okay? If I sell you a bottle of water and I tell you there's bacteria in it, <laughs> it's true. There is bacteria in that water. I don't know what I'm adding. Okay? If I had the money and resources, I would go to Eli and say, here, here are the bottles of bacteria being sold in the market right now. Can you test for me and tell me what the hell is in there? And secondly, how long does it survive in my mm. tank? How long does it survive in the bottle? I don't have that kind of resources, but you know, th these are kind of things that today's technology you could attempt to find out. People are you know, doing that, by if, the way. People are testing. Want to pursue that end of things, right? It's not because I want to make fun of manufacturers or anything, right? They're going to sell whatever they want to sell, right? I mean, Sure, sewage plants add bacteria all the time to process the sewage because there are bacteria that eat sludge and do all those things, right? Now, is that same bacteria, if I put in my tank, will my detritus all of a sudden get clean and cleared out? Or will that bacteria even survive in salt water? I don't know. Remember in the old days, and nobody wants to give me the answer when I ask these questions. <laughs> now, remember in the old days when we were inoculating a tank, we would take substrate from our friend's tank that was thriving, put it in our tank, and the bacteria would take off. Hey, you guys were paying for Garf Grunge, and I had yeah, a Grunge in your tank. I'm spilling all the detritus I take out <laughs> once a month. That will not inoculate your tank. The only time I was worried that I had wiped out the bacteria is when I treated for STN with Cipro. Then I knew I killed off a significant number of the different strains in there, good and bad. So that's when I added a, a variety of bacteria because no one, like he says, no one tells you what's in there. I have no idea. It looks an odd color, but that may be ginger ale that uh, rotted. Who knows? So in that standpoint, I put in the, the new bacteria from bottles, but since then I haven't done so because it either is going to survive or it's gone. And if it's gone, me adding more of it isn't going to make it survive. Put my detritus in your tank and you'll notice a difference. <laughs> yeah. That's what we, Sanjay, we don't sell corals. We should start selling our detritus. I think that's where the money is. So what I'm hearing is that um, the rate at which corals potentially can consume bacteria, the, the rate at which bacteria potentially can be pulled out by skimmers or other like water changes or what have you is, is not going to be higher than the rate that the bacteria can multiply. Is that a, is that a fair? Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, no one's done that, but most of the bacteria that we add are on the substrate. They're not just free swimming in the water. So the skimmer's not going to take them out. When you first add, obviously, the liquid, you don't want to put it in your overflow and have it sucked through and taken out the skimmer. You want to put it in the tank. But some is going to survive. As long as even one or two bacterium survive, if the conditions are right, they're going to reproduce and cover and take care of themselves. I mean, as, as long as you have some, bacteria grow amazingly fast. I mean, having worked in cancer and infectious disease, I saw how fast bacteria can reproduce under the right conditions. Our water's warm, it's full of nutrients. Guess what? Those are perfect conditions for bacterium. 
that gets back to the original thing. If you have Vibrio Volnificus, wear gloves. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rob. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things in this hobby that we do. Like I said, it comes down to faith and belief at some point because you don't have the real answers to it. If you believe that adding that bottle of bacteria is doing good for your tank, you'll believe that. And maybe, you know, that's good enough. It makes you happy, your tank looks good, and you think you have this, the method to do it, be my guest. Do it, okay? But then don't try to sell this thing to everybody as the solution to their problems. <laughs> no, right? as, as we started off at the beginning of this, when I said, what have I changed? What I've changed is not doing changes. If you're happy with your tank and it looks good, don't follow what I have done in the past. And I, I will say this because I'm always trying to tinker and learn. Don't constantly be trying to change things. Stick with what's working for you. Or if you're starting out, find someone whose tank you admire. Follow what they're doing. Don't listen to all the other garbage that's on social media and on the Internet. Follow someone that's being successful and do what they're doing. It's not that hard. I mean, that's what we did when we started. When there were a dozen of us doing this, we didn't have it at the internet. We didn't even have books or magazines. We went and saw each other's tanks. We go, okay, what are you doing here? Okay, and that's what we did. And guess what? It worked. That's why we're still doing this 40 years later. It, it's not rocket science. There are some nuances and there are pitfalls. And like we said, there's always something that screws up, oftentimes our own stupidity. But if you follow someone that you trust, I mean, someone somewhere, if you have a 90-gallon tank, go look at 90-gallon tanks. See whose 90-gallon tank you admire. You can aquascape it similarly. You can stock it similarly and do the methodology the same. You'll probably be a lot more successful than following Sanjay or me or 30 other people on the Internet. It's true. You agree? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of what we did in the past. Yeah, that's why exactly yeah. what we did. That's why we went on road trips to find out what other people were doing. Um, yeah, firsthand, that's the way to learn. Rob Upstate, New York, thank you so much for that very, very generous super chat, man. Uh, Keith, Sanjay, Mike, always informative. Thank you all. Some comments. Uh, Mark Vanderwall, I'm going to start selling my sump detritus in bottles. Ch hey, wait, wait. Mine, no, no. mine will sell for a lot a more cut. than yours, Mark. He can do that. He has to give us okay. a cut. He's stealing my ideas Ch now. Champion lighting and supplies. Sanjay's Reef Mom. Let's do it. Um, exactly. we, we got a new hashtag going here by Jason Loran went. Uh, uh, hashtag drink mom challenge. No. God rest his soul. <laughs> Leroy Headley was doing well. his reef grunge 30 years ago. He was ahead of the right. curve. Then people stopped doing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Go, go ahead. I mean, I always look and say, you know, we have technology today that can help. I don't think it'll answer all the questions, right? But it'll answer some of them, right? And we should try to use it somehow to answer the questions, right? They don't have to be full-blown scientific experiments either. We're not trying to publish in a peer-reviewed journal, but at least we get some useful data and information yeah right i mean it's like my complaint in the past always used to be you know people are selling me trace elements if you can't put the concentration of the taste element on the bottle mm -hmm. it makes no sense to me at all because i can do the math that it takes to increase the level from a to b 
But if you don't even tell me what's in there, I can't You're going blind, more. going in blind. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I'm trusting you, right? On what basis? I don't know. Yeah. Going back to the past, we should have learned early on when our, our old, another departed dear friend, Albert Teal, was selling bottles of Kalkwasser for $22 a bottle per gallon, and they had a tablespoon of calcium hydroxide in them, which was worth about four cents. <laughs> okay, there, there's been a lot of people that have made a lot of money selling water. We, we will leave it at that. I'm not saying anyone is selling us water, but a lot of people have made a lot of money selling water. Well, maybe that's a good place to uh, to end the uh, the chat here. I don't know, guys. You have anything else you wanted to uh, talk about? We're gonna wrap this. No, I'm good. Any final words? Have fun. More than anything else, have this fun. hobby is supposed to be fun. If you get into it like it's going to be a business, once a, a fun thing becomes a business, it's not fun anymore. Sanjay and I still have a blast doing this because this is our hobby we don't make any money doing this we have fun doing this from bustling on each other to doing road trips to coming to visit each other i i strongly suggest you do that and it makes this hobby a lot better than i'm gonna make a million dollars selling coral fragments as big <laughs> although you may make a million dollars selling bottles of uh detritus out of your wow. thing, but my god the secret yeah <laughs> todd Todd, call me afterwards, <laughs> later. Todd from Champion, call me later. <laughs> going to make millions. We're going to make millions, millions. Sanjay. Billions. Life-changing money comes from dirt. All right, guys, yeah. listen, thanks again so much for taking the time to uh, join me in this live stream. I know everybody out there really appreciated it. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much again. I also want to thank both Bulkery Supply and Ecotech Marine for being sponsors of this show and supporting it. Also want to thank all you folks out there that tuned in and um, were watching, contributed via the chat. Also a big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to this hobby. Also want to let you know that all episodes of Rap on the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. Thank you, Champion Lighting and Supply, for that super chat. Book them again, Keith, as a comment. <laughs> My next rapper on the Reef Bomb. Hey, they come for yeah. free. Book them. Yeah, book them again. <laughs> Remember, people, you got what you paid for here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my next uh, live stream will be on Thursday, August 31st, next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Claude Schumacher from Fauna Marine. I'll watch that um, one with Claude. I will send him some questions. Yeah, that should be another interesting uh, uh, show. So <laughs> if you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, please visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. Until next time, be safe and be well. Later. <laughs>